2: Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shape Me. If you're on the Kent coast, you can come and buy it from the market bookshop, my lovely local. This week, our guest is the writer, MP and feminist firefighter, Jess Phillips. Jess is the MP for Birmingham Yardley and the author of Every Woman, One Woman's Truth About Speaking the Truth. And her brand new book is Truth to Power. Seven Ways to Call Time on BS, which is out this month. I've loved Jess for a long time because she is compassionate, courageous and committed to using her voice in order to make sure that as many people as possible are heard. She's also one of the funniest people on Twitter. We went to Birmingham to have a rifle through her shelves and chat about Margaret Atwood, Sue Townsend and why Matilda is a superhero who inspires boys and girls. Uh, So I'm going to do a little bit of scene searching. We're in the spare room. Um... Is that all right, by the way? I've left yeah, it no, no, it's, it's so Beautiful sort of like melanin shelf. And I don't know. <laughs> okay, so this is really, this is a very cool selection. If you were sort of staying, you know, if you had an overnight guest, I see Adrian Mould, um, <laughs> Stick of the Dump, um, Philip Pullman. There was a Douglas Copeland one I saw, yeah, but I'd never... All 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 are psychotic. Are psychotic. I don't know that book, but it sounds
3: amazing. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant book.
2: Is it a novel? Mm-hmm.
3: I read it years and years ago. It was my friend Alex. It was her uh it was her favourite book. And it's a, it is about a sort of fam it's it's as basic as just being about a family. Uh but they are all mad. <laughs> <laughs> and having a pop at each other all the time.
2: Well that's kind that's part of most books, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? <Or> <laughs> indeed, indeed. So when did you, is this um, your friend's copy or is this? It may
3: well be. I think it might have been her copy. Or so or well, Alex, most... if you're listening. <laughs> yes, Alex, thanks for that. Uh, most of the books that I have are usually stolen from my mum and dad. Uh, so yeah, we, I used to steal books off my mum all the time.
2: So did were they big readers when you grew up? Would they? Sort yeah, of, my dad reads
3: made. books like. Uh, every book that he ever reads is the best book he's ever re- read <laughs> and so like whatever he's reading is like you must read this it's the most important book ever but he thinks that about every single book but my mum was the most avid reader she would read so we'd go on holiday and she'd have to take a suitcase full of books because she would get through them she'd read a... she'd read a novel in a day every single day but if you asked her anything about them and i do suffer from this She'd be like, oh, I don't know. I remember there was a girl in it. Like, She would have <laughs> min- instantly forget the book. And she once claimed that in uh, War and Peace, she only read the peace bits. <laughs> the war bits were boring. But my mum, my mum would just like, you know, all, every booker list, she would buy every single one of them and just get through them in a week. And she was an avid reader, my mum.
2: Now at the time of um, recording, I don't know if we might know who has won the booker, um, when this goes out, do you have any? I haven't, I haven't any tips? read any of them, I don't think. Because the Testaments oh, just the Testaments, came out, which is yes, obviously it is. quite. Uh, it's weird, isn't it? It's like it's an event; it's taken on the life of its own. Are you an Atwood fan? Will you be reading? I, I am
3: an Atwood fan, and I did an event uh, on the launch of the Testaments uh, for a charity called Equality Now, linked to the book. And I was asked there when was the first time you read. Um, The Handmaid's Tale and everybody had these like amazing stories to tell about how they'd been at university and they felt it was like they were reading it and they felt it was totally claustrophobic and like it had a feminist awakening in them but I was like 14 when I read The Handmaid's Tale again from my mum my mum was like you must read this book and I just remember thinking it was like science fiction dystopia like Brave New World it didn't particularly reach me on a feminist level but as I've got older and watching the TV programme I've reread it recently and I've had a completely different experience. And I will be reading the testaments. I'm in the middle of a book at the moment, but I will, um, as soon as I'm done, I will read the testament.
2: It's all right. I'm not the. Come <laughs> on, <laughs> yeah. prove your feminism. But it's a bloody testament. event the
3: day after it had come out. And one of the people on the panel had read it already. I was like, how have you managed this? Clearly,
2: they, <laughs> came don't, out. Have no, they don't have political obligations or yeah. responsibilities. <laughs> <with the> <laughs> it's really interesting to hear you say that though because I do think it's a book that you sort of I mean I you know I do think it's brilliant but again I was quite a young teenager when I read it and I think I felt as you did that I because I'd read The Edible Woman first which I actually I find that I found that much more kind of weird and Mm -hmm. engrossing and I enjoyed the experience of reading it more and um my mum and dad hadn't read Atwood and I think I got um, the Edible Woman out of the library and they read it and then they got the hand they thought, oh, she's very good. Oh, feminism. And I said, mm, yes, yes, very important.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I didn't get particularly feminist overtones, but I mean, the, the, the realising of it in the TV programme, certainly in the first series, which is, uh, you know, much more to the book, it is, I mean, deeply feminist and... S- Funnily enough, um, we were listening to Brave New World on the radio. It was we were cu- driving back from Cornwall or somewhere with the kids, and it was the radio player Brave New World was on, and it could have been written about now, even though it's what now, nearly a hundred years old. It's getting on for, Gosh, and yeah. The Handmaid's Tale has that same effect of being timeless, Dang. totally timeless. That you could read it now, and you can paste Trump onto it. You can. Uh, paste all of the violence against women and girls around the world that we now see and hear about yeah. much more and so it is. imagine writing a book that stayed relevant for decades and decades that is phenomenal
2: I mean I, I think she's angry about it I don't think oh, yeah, she wants surely. it to be <laughs> like that. come on this changed nothing yeah, no, yeah. Um,
3: there's a brilliant woman who often comes to the protest that I see and her sign just says why am I still protesting this shit <laughs> <laughs> it's just like yeah why is that we having to say it over and over again
2: not to get, move away from the um, <laughs> seriousness seriousness but I was thinking about the books that are timeless in different ways and your the books that you reread and I see that little one all, all Sue Townsend
3: all Sue Townsend I am obsessed with Sue Townsend and I have been since I was about 10 years old for the first time I read Adrian Marlowe I was about 10 I think if not a bit younger and I absolutely loved it, and I remember taking it into school. It might have been The Queen and I, actually, and I was reading that, which is the one that Sue Townsend wrote about the Queen ending up... There's, like, a communist coup, and the Queen ends up living in a council house um, with all the royal family, and it is very funny... And I remember taking it into school because I'd been reading it, and a teacher saying to me, "You're too young to be reading that book." And so I wrote Sue Townsend a letter and said that my uh, teacher had said I was too young to it. And she wrote back to me. <gasps> I, rem- I, I I remember it vividly. It was like a Pre-Raphaelite uh, postcard, and it had a cat sticker on it. And she wrote, you, "You're not too young. You, you read whatever you want, whenever you want." But I I absolutely, and I feel that they are timeless, even though it is written in Thatcher's Britain, the Adrian Mole books. I feel that they are totally timeless because as I have grown up, when I was a kid, I was like, oh my God, I want to be Pandora and her amazing treacle hair. And she's like the embodiment. And funnily enough, she does end up being a Labour MP. Pandora in the later books. So I feel like maybe I did that because Pandora was guiding me. Uh, But now when I read it as somebody who has a son who is just 14, so has very recently been three, 13 and three quarters, that now I totally associate myself with everything that Pauline Mole says, the way she's just constantly rolling her eyes and tutting at Adrian for being a <laughs> I, I mean, I just find that absolutely delightful now, that now my my absolute hero in the books is Pauline Mole. If I, you know, any literary character, Pauline Mole, Adrian's mom, is the, she is my load star. Did she
2: ever, I don't know that she did that, but I might have missed it. Was there ever... Just a poor book. book. No, no there, there wasn't. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. I was thinking as well, how, because um, <laughs> whenever you, you speak about class, you are so compassionate and eloquent. And there's stuff that I found myself lazily thinking. And then I've listened to your words on it as well, actually. I really need to kind of. I am the liberal elite and I must question everything. And <laughs> don't... I don't. Everybody is all right being everything that they are. <laughs> But I think that's—it's so interesting the way that comes up in Adrian Mole, and obviously it's you know oh, Thatcher yeah. times. But here's sort of weird, like the class aspirations, and I love the the nuance of sort of how the Mole family, you know, sort of straddling several different classes, Absolutely. and he obviously wants to be more like Pandora, and they're sophisticated and you know so and all those weird kind of the class signifiers and the things we yeah. attach importance to and it's weird how that hasn't changed just maybe. Even their
3: house isn't it the the sense of their house uh adrian's house is always totally manic and mm. crazy and there's like old people coming and going whereas pandora's house is like beige and what you'd now imagine would be like art from next <laughs> and uh and like they've got you know the car on the drive and yeah the, the, it is amazing but also she's What she does so brilliantly, Sue Townsend, is she punctures both of those things. She Mm. punctures the middle class. And so even now, when I'm thinking about Pandora's family, they're essentially nouveau riche, aren't they? They're essentially like, sort of like, oh, we're considerably better than you, Mm. yeah. And actually, like I say, the hero of the piece is the working class family who are Mm. allowed to be brilliant and clever and politically engaged. But also, there is no moral judgment on the chaos in their lives the fact that you know he keeps running off with the stick insect and uh you still feel a fondness to the characters even though he's from a broken home and the lovely old man uh Bert that he talks to is clearly a bit of a racist (laughs) and uh it covers all life I think is what I really really love
2: about it I I think that might have been the first book I read when I was like oh god you know grown-ups aren't just sorted people and it's like they've not got like their job in life is to look after children they've got very complex emotional unresolved lives yeah
3: that, that is what is so brilliant about it is that adrian is merely one character and he <laughs> thinks he's the center of the universe but they have like, and they get stuff wrong and it's okay that they get stuff wrong uh, you, you very rarely get to see that portrayal of working class people anymore and in the 80s you saw it so much more Um, You saw so many better representations of clever, witty, funny hardworking or not hardworking and both of those things being okay yeah. that they don't have to you know be down the mine to be virtuous they can also be in the pub and be virtuous people mm. and you don't you don't see that anymore the sort of dole culture if i think of bread off the top of my head mm. you know they were in the dole queue they were literally in the dole office but you never thought that billy wasn't clever and funny and witty or knew what he was talking about whereas now the representation is of sort of pity almost mm. and i wish that it would go back to the working class that i grew up with which is funny and brilliant and my mum was literally from a single parent family my my grand my granddad ran off with loads of floozies as my nan used to say and you know and did all, i mean it, unimaginable we always had loads of aunties instead of nan so auntie ivy was one and she looked like bet lynch and the, uh, I mean, she <laughs> I literally wore leopard. She literally wore leopard prints and had a big blonde booth on. But my granddad was a brilliant and funny character. And then my mum, who came from that environment, and my mum was a dinner lady and a single parent. And my mum became the person who read every single book on the Booker Prize list. So it just—it's not my reality that working class people aren't as clever, if not cleverer.
2: Go back to your. Mum and Dad, you say about your dad being like, this is a different when book ever. When, when has that been true? And when have you read a book and you <laughs> thought, no, Dad, this was not the one?
3: To be honest, I don't take many recommendations <laughs> from him because my dad is quite cerebral. My dad has definitely got this, the sort of affliction of being a clever kid from a different class, from a, a, a very working class background where there is a definite need to better yourself. And so my dad reads lots of books that are not necessarily fiction books. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're like improving your, like he he will read history know. books, like the sort of Silk Road stuff and that is really sort of cerebral. Like he's, he, he wants to learn constantly, my dad, and it is a, an amazing skill. But I have to say, I read for pleasure mainly <laughs> rather than to, you know, learn anything particularly new. and. <laughs>
2: That maybe comes back to you know what you're saying about sort of class, and that's all a bit miserable and joyless, and I think even. Across all classes, there's a real joy deficit that you're not allowed to just be funny and make jokes and, you know, be clever and have a You've really got to kind of perform your own life all the time. Absolutely. Like, everything must be optimised. Yeah, at the moment, that's definitely the case. Like, And everybody,
3: like, everybody lies about the books that they've read. <laughs> <laughs> and so there are some books that everybody has to pretend to have read. Like, I mean, like books like 1984. Mm-hmm. You can't, I mean, you, you can't really exist in the world if you've not read 1984. But most of the people i No, haven't read Nineteen Eighty Four, and wouldn't have. But yeah, you're right. Everybody feels they have to perform constantly.
2: I love this that I've just spotted. You've got, um, you've got. SEO truck sandwich and they've got <laughs> uh, two copies of the Twits well, and I that, think they're both because these look like beautiful old oh. old copies yeah mm. well, that, what
3: you've got there is the marriage of two families and where one is my childhood copy of the Twits and one is my husband's uh, childhood copy of the Twits and I think that if you were to ask my husband there's quite a lot of the the sort of uh, the Dune books here and the the my husband's a massive science fiction uh, lover so and he's really into sort of dystopian literature and stuff. But I think that actually he might say a different book. With he might say Necromancer was his favourite book if you asked him. But actually, in reality, my husband's favourite book in the whole world is the Twits. Oh! <laughs> And he's got a big beard, my husband. He's got a big black beard. And so he is a bit like Mr. Twit. The
2: things land <laughs> in, in his the Yeah, bit. there's always some
3: food in it. And sometimes if I say, oh, Tom, you've got something in your beard, he will, to annoy me, he will put more food into <laughs> his beard. He will literally, like, get food and be like, I don't care, and put more food in his beard. But, yeah, so the Twits is, is the book he refers to the most and definitely the book he had the most joy in reading to our children o- again, over and over and over again. did
2: they embrace? Rolled out. was the Twits their favourite or did they land yeah. on any other no I mean my son My well my son Danny champion is, the, is the
3: champion of the world and when he was born my friend bought me um, a brilliant illustration of, from Danny and the champion of the world oh, uh,
2: and there it is Danny champion of the world oh, um, and I remember that spine so well that was the one that was in um, we had that in my classroom at school yeah I think that's probably you sure? if you look, can I read it's probably,
3: uh, well it's uh, oh yeah, there you go that is for somebody else that oh. It's just a book we've obviously got from a charity shop (laughs) uh, or a classroom that we've stolen. That's not us. That's
2: (laughs) always a bit weird, like inscriptions on books when you find them in charity shops. I've got
3: absolutely loads, funnily enough. I've got absolutely loads of children's books, quite a lot of the Roald Dahl ones, like the Giraffe, the Pelly and Me. And when I open them, it is this book belongs to, um, and it's a woman called Chris Furman, who was my reception teacher at um, infant school. And funnily enough, she is the mother of one of my best friends and the grandmother of my son's best friend's kids. So I feel this deep sense of joy when I open it and it's one of the books that she'd obviously given to us uh, when we were kids. Um, But yeah, my kids, uh, Danny, my son, my youngest son, absolutely loves Roald Dahl books. But he's recently, I suppose, maybe he read Boy and that's why... He's become very interested in Roald Dahl himself. Oh. Uh About the man and about the, his life. So he will constantly tell me facts. Maybe he's got this from my dad, that he, Danny likes facts about things. But he will constantly tell me facts about Roald Dahl. So he was talking to me the other day about how his uh, daughter had died of measles. Yeah, he's, he's fascinated by Roald Dahl himself. And I went, I was in Tanzania recently on a delegation um and I went to the British embassy with in Tanzania and in that house is where Roald Dahl had lived and there was a tree in the back garden that one of the I think it was one of the trees in one of the books had been based on and I told my son Danny and he was obsessed with this idea. I
2: think it's interesting as well, isn't it, the way it's really hard to um separate should I sit down but I feel like yeah, I'm just standing, standing over you. you can't go. Um, to go That we slightly messy bed um, <laughs> But I really like this um, beautiful Again, from a charity shop. <laughs> they have all the best stuff. I think it's really hard to read the story and just be. And they made it up. You want it to be a bit true. You want to be a, yeah. there to be a bit of the writer in there. That,
3: I think that all stories are a bit true. And what you think about when I think about Roald Dahl specifically, you know, the the way that adults are monstered. Adults mm. are essentially, you know, the granny and George's Marvelous Medicine, and the you know Miss Trunchbull in Matilda. I think that he must there must have been in his life some really awful teachers or his parents must have been oppressive towards him, because children are like the key to everything in all of his books. So there must be truth in some of it.
2: Then I'm sure as well that's why you know he has endured and been because that you know I think when you're little you. There are moments when you really, really see the world yeah. like that, and it's sort of you versus them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I read
3: a story about how he'd, um whatever public school he went to. In fact, I think it was around here. He went to sort of one of the public schools around here, and um on the way walking into the village, there was a sweet shop, and he used to like look in through the windows of the sweet shop, and that was like the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory thing, like the, the description of the sweets and how it had been magical to him. I really feel actually his life, his interesting and checkered life in uh, his stories. I really love them, but danny's favorite by a country mile is Matilda by a country mile that's his favorite book
2: and that's really thrilling as well isn't it because we you know generalize and i'm not sure how true this is in a sort of you know child by child basis, but it's kind of thought that like girls have no problem loving superheroes and loving sort of characters that seem to be male but it's harder for some reason for boys boys to to flip it for all kinds of reasons of conditioning but it's, I think that's right because Matilda is so I love her because she doesn't get mad, she gets even she's got this absolutely right but she's able to kind of stand back and not, you know, and sort of see this sort of injustice and just be very, very, rather than feel her frustrations. Yeah, I think, she I think that... She's very uh, clever about expressing them.
3: If you could be any character from literature as a sort of young feminist, you would be Matilda, yeah. because she's so powerful. I mean, not literally because she has powers that are odd, mm. but because she literally... Everything about her is powerful. She allows herself to be powerful and believes it, and she's a, the best character ever. But funny enough, my son Danny much prefers stories with girls as the protagonists. And so, like, the the amber spyglass I and all of those. Of so, yeah. uh, and in fact, uh, my husband absolutely, and I, we all love the uh, Dark Materials books. Uh, and my mum absolutely loved them. And I remember thinking, aren't they like kids' books? Because they're the point, mm. like point horror yeah. <laughs> uh, when you were a teenager. Yeah, we all absolutely loved them. But if anything, I the, the final one... I'm less keen on because I think that uh, Lyra doesn't shine as much. Mm. I think that Lyra is the best thing about the books. Yeah, I think Danny much, much preferred. His favourite film is The Wizard of Oz. So he likes a female central <laughs> character.
2: <laughs> that is a pretty great favourite film to pick. It's got everything, Mr. Oz. I, I know, it's really odd. He's loved it ever is, since he was like three. Has he read the book? I don't think he has read the book.
3: Is it a good book?
2: I was absolutely freaked out by it, I think, because I remember it being something where, you know, you sort of see the film, love the film, and then... Oh, well, you know you should read this if you like the film so much, and being just a bit chilled and a bit frightened and a little bit like have you ever read Mary Poppins? I was about to say I remember
3: reading Mary Poppins She's in my school mean library in my school library It was like I was like oh i 'll read this on a rainy day and being like she 's horrible, yeah, Mary Poppins is sinister mm, I think
2: so sinister
3: i mean it's because it was Julie Andrews, I suppose they <laughs> you just You can't make Julie Andrews sinister. That would be quite something to make Julie Andrews sinister. I
2: wonder if they tried and you just couldn't do it. Okay, we'll rewrite it. Incapable
3: of, uh, yeah, being horrible.
2: Did you read The Point Horrors as a teen? Yes,
3: I did. I can't, I mean, I read them all, but I can't. I'm
2: not going to say. Which one is my favourite? I don't know, I can't
3: remember any of them. I read all that sort of thing. So I read uh, The Point Horrors. Uh I never read the Sweet Valley High books so much. Uh I think I read one or two. I read um Judy Bloom books, all of those teenager books. I feel like when I was a teenager there was a real that was really the sort of beginning of that whole teen genre. Uh, so, yeah, we read all of those and we passed them around in class for the I rude think bits.
2: The <laughs> book that gets mentioned the most on this podcast is Forever by Judy, Judy Bloom. Bloom. And well, everyone says yeah. that it was the one copy shared between 30 yeah. girls. Exactly, yeah, well, we definitely
3: used to talk about it in class. But it is, I mean, now, actually, I think in modern times, to write like Judy Bloom did about relationships and teenagers sort of coming of age to write about it without some of the darker side that almost all teenagers go through I think would be difficult so it's good you know I I would want to see I wish that I'd had Known some of the things that I know now when That's I was a
2: teenage an girl. Book that she wrote that I think it's called starring Sally J. Friedman as herself, and it's quite it's her younger end. It's, I think it's for younger readers than of so things like Forever, but it's about I think it's immediately after the war, and it's a family. I think they maybe moved to Long Island, possibly Florida, and. They are, I think, Italian and they move to a very sort of anti-Semitic neighbourhood and they've got Jewish friends and it's all about how that plays out oh into the post. And it's really, it's so, I've written for sort of no. 10-year-olds, but it's great and it really...
3: Well, there's lots of brilliant children's books that tackle issues over racism and and gender. Mm-hmm. and I mean, unfortunately, we have run up against some of it in recent months around whether certain religious groups feel that it's acceptable for their children to be reading books that are about equality and gay and lesbian people.
2: I know it's not the same thing at all really but I was thinking about that teacher telling you not to read Sue Townsend and I think that really lights a fire in a kid you know when you say you can't have this. Totally.
3: I've literally read every single thing that Sue Townsend has ever written uh, like a hundred times. I feel that maybe that was just really trying to prove that point so that I can read Sue Townsend. But yeah, I think that if you tell people not to want to read this, I remember when I was a kid, was when the Satanic Verses thing all came oh. out. I have no desire to read the Satanic Verses now. And at the time, I had no idea what it was about. Uh, I must have been about 11. And I was like, I'm going to read this book because I'm being told that it's bad. And I, I mean I would have been lost if I'd read even like 3 pages but I remember I remember that and I remember Madonna's Sex Book oh. when that came out I remember vividly Like being like, yeah, 10 years old and being like, what is this sex book? Because it came in like a cellophane wrapper, didn't it, in the shop. So you couldn't just go into the shop and have a rifle through it. Did you get to look at a copy? I did, because at the time, funnily enough, there was a, we used to have loads of lodgers and uh, at the time there was a bloke called John and he was going through a divorce and he worked with my mum and he came to live with us and he had a, it was probably about a year after the controversy, but he had a copy of the Madonna sex book and I remember being like, yes, finally, I can look at the Madonna sex
2: book. You had to kind of sneak it out if it <laughs> to was To be
3: the... honest, I feel then, as I do now, it was a bit tame. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit like, it's a bit like when you watch Sex in the City, you, you hoped for more <laughs> of the sex, less of the city. And uh, so, yeah, I, th- I remember being a bit like, not sure what all the fuss was about in the Madonna sex book. Is that
2: something that I'm sort of trying to get my head around now when you think, you know, because I know, you know, and rightly, because it's very, very worrying, but we talk a lot about what children and teenagers can access and how explicit it is and how much of it there is and how problematic it is in terms of the way that people and acts are presented but I mean, not that long ago you'd wait a whole year to see a picture of a fanny. (laughs) Exactly, of Madonna's family. Uh, I mean, I think
3: it's special because it was Madonna's. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, now my now. kids can just go on their phones, and the whole world of porn is available to them. do the limit search, Madonna's family. So I think that there was an element of, of when you're coming of age, when you're a teenager, where you it used people used to read smutty books for that exact reason because that was and that was part of as Catlin Moran talks about this brilliantly the part of the sort of awakening of lots of teenage girls uh, sexuality I don't know I've never been a teenage boy was you know you were reading books and people were having sex in them and I remember being I remember when Lady Chatterley's Lover came out on the telly and being like oh I'm going to take that book upstairs like let's read this book again disappointing yes <laughs>
2: <laughs> it that, um, and that, and all of um, G.H. Lawrence. i like, are they, are they having sex? Or well, not the, the flowers and metaphors? And what I don't, what's going I on? I remember
3: in uh, reading Thomas Hardy at school, and um, the, my, I, and then I came to the conclusion that all English teachers were just obsessed with sex because they would say that everything was sex in every book. They're like, oh, the moist oh. grass. That's sex. I'm like, I think it's just grass, miss. And,
2: and it's like things like with um, Thomas, like if a character's got dark hair, it means that she's wild and promiscuous. Yes, or yeah. if she's in a stream, she yes. wants to have well, sex. Then, and I if she's got a basket, it symbolises
3: a vagina. Yeah, that is exactly what my English teacher told me. And I was thinking, miss, I think maybe she just had something to carry. And that's why she had a basket. But then like, so we Pretty read Tessa, we, we read Tessa the D'Abervilles. And then in the actual scene, which is of sexual violence rather than Actual sex there's nothing I was like you've been telling me this whole book is about sex and in the actual sex scene bit no sex <laughs> at all <laughs> it's, it's, fundamentally you've told me everything is about sex and then there isn't actually any sex in it obviously at the time it would have been smutty to write about sex um, but yeah I, 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 um, and then all of my English teachers got pregnant whilst I was going through school and so we were just convinced that they were just total nymphos <laughs> <in> English
2: <their> teachers <laughs> Like, oh, I've read this spicy package exactly. of James <laughs> Exactly.
0: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much.
1: If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: We'll be back to Jess soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a wordy wonder that would definitely count as your big present if you were to put it on your Christmas list. This week, it's Wedding Tastes I'll Never Give by Ada Calhoun. This is a book of essays. The title essay is the piece Ada wrote for the New York Times Modern Love column, an essay that garnered such an enormous response that the book could not be written. This is one of my favourite books. It's tender, romantic, often painful, shocking and funny. This is about what happens after a happy ever after. It's about the quietness of love and about the gaps in our imagination and perception when it comes to what we believe lasting love to be versus what it actually is. I truly believe this book. Will enhance your relationship or your marriage. Just ask producer Dale. In all seriousness, I think about these words often and I love them. To hitch your rickety wagon to the flickering star of another valuable human being. What an insane thing to do. What a burden and what a gift. That's Wedging Toasts I'll Never Give by Ada Calhoun, published by Norton and out now. Now back to Jess. Did you? Because I know that um, in How to Be a Woman, Catelyn um, Moran talks a lot about Jilly Cooper. I'm a very big Jilly Cooper fan, and that, is where, that was um, filling in the, the gaps that Thomas Hardy couldn't reach. Have you read? I have never read any Jilly
3: Cooper, but my friend Jess is totally obsessed with them. Like she's like gets it on the uh, first day. I haven't, but I feel that I should. I've also never read any Jackie Collins. Ah. And um, again, my mates on holiday... They they all are reading some Jackie Collins novel or not because they're the ones that get left in the book exchange or like you get left in your holiday home. There's always a Jackie Collins, so somebody will always read a Jackie Collins. In fact, I remember my friend Marcella when we were on holiday once reading this Jackie Collins uh, book, like The Stud or something, and it had been left in the flat we were staying in, and then it didn't have the last eight pages. She's like, <laughs> What? <laughs> this is like a torture. Oh, <laughs> Total torture. I was like, I'm I'm fairly sure those copies are widely available elsewhere.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I really love that, though. I think especially when you do get sort of stuck and you end up reading like a John Grisham that you never would have read otherwise. And sometimes it's totally
3: amazing. I I read uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy that way. It was like in a, and I was like, it's so atmospheric. And and I would never uh, read the blurb of that and be like, yeah, I'm going to read this. I would never, ever, as soon as it's like, it's set in the Civil War England or whatever, I'm like, anything that's really boyish, I'm like, I'm not reading this. And I would never have read Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy uh, because spy novels, I would just be like, like whatever, but I absolutely it is a genius did piece you really of did writing any more?
2: Okay. afterwards, or no. did you just oh, let no, that? For the
3: Constant Gardener is that like
2: a, oh.
3: oh, is that like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read that one, but that was because my mum, um, my mum really really liked that one. She, my mum loved murder, she didn't read it maybe. And this is the reason I've never read Jilly Cooper or Jackie Collins, is because my mum didn't read them and I just got oh. all my books from her. But she, she was an absolute, um, that's the sort of. If if we were going to be snobby about it, the sort of trashy, uh, not she would read loads of spy and murder mysteries. So she would, she would like all of the Ruth Rendell books. Like uh, when I was a kid. And then there were like the Ruth Rendell mysteries on the telly. But luckily, because my mum couldn't remember anything from a book, she never knew who had done it on the TV, <laughs> even though she'd read the book.
2: When there are so many as well, they all kind of like, oh, is this the one where yeah. the dog... Oh, no, that's <laughs> Agatha Christie. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah, and so that's why I never read those. But I read lots of uh, murder mystery novels uh, when I was a kid. But less so now. Now, I have to say, uh, the, the books I read now are much more... Like, I don't care what people think about what I read and I I just want to escape but not like fantasy my 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 escape is reading about 30 something women obviously it's not that escapist um but because my life is complicated and difficult and I see harrowing things at work and have done ever since I worked at Women's Aid and still do today I, I really don't want Horrible to read about horrible things happening to people because I, I see it enough all the time and when rereading The Handmaid's Tale mm. and actually watching the drama of it as well being able to, reading it was was okay but watching, actually watching women being held down mm. and sexually assaulted when I know people that has happened to I found it really, really difficult so now I tend to read what people would term chick lit and I read I books about that. like Checklist. I mean, it's the, the best. Yeah, so it's so. I love so... Keys, and I absolutely love uh, Ma- Mari McFarland. Oh my god, I love her. her. She's
2: brilliant.
3: And me and my mates are all like, "Oh, have you seen that the new ones come out?" And we like, I just think it's really, she's really funny she's so and really clever. Dialogue and, as well. Yeah. And
2: what I love about her is the friends are never supporting characters. She always she writes really, really yeah. real friendships. And, and I have to say,
3: on screen, I almost never see friendships that I can believe in. I suppose Fleabag it was uh, a sort of change away from that. But in books, when it, friendships are written mm. so much better, especially female friendships, mm. the dialogue between female friendships in uh, Mario McFarlane compared to if you re-watch things like Sex in the City with four women, nobody talks like that. Like, it, it's, people are so stilted in on TV. Even I remember watching um, Mamma Mia and just thinking... People are not friends like this. This is so weird, <laughs> well, the way you're behaving. What's
2: so bizarre about Sex and the City is they all seem to believe that sort of they are best friends with Carrie, but they don't really have much in the way of relationships with each other, and it's just
3: odd. Yeah, it it's is. really odd. It is, yeah. You, you never see, like, Samantha out right, with Miranda. <laughs>
2: They're, quite, they're sort of a bit snippy with each other, and it's um... yeah. So
3: I, uh, I really, really love uh, Marie McFarland. But I really, I have to say, I think that uh, Irish writers they write in a certain way. So Sally Rooney, mm. uh, her her book about, and the fact that the characters were these Irish in the most recent one, the nor- is it normal oh, people? Really?
2: Oh, I'm so glad because I've just finished reading that and I was I was writing something and I was really really nervous that I was it was going to kind of get in my head and I was accidentally going to just write a shit version of normal people so I'm like no put it away move away and now I'm like I, I have so many questions I, I just don't know how I, how I feel about it I don't know what I think
3: <laughs> I absolutely loved it I absolutely loved the male character mm. whose name now currently escapes me uh, <sighs> Connor uh, because he is like lads I knew in that era I like that none of them are blowsy. The thing I'm yeah. going to say about Normal People that is, I would say, the best thing about it is that the sex in it is really well written. Mm. Is really well written. Uh, and it is realistic, but not, like, awkward realistic like uh, you might see in, like, um, How to Be Famous by Catelyn Moran where mm. it's very realistic yes. about bad sexual experiences. Oh my
2: God. What's Is it How to Be Famous or How to Build a Girl? And there's the description of... Um... I might need producer Dale's help. Do you mean Bernie Winters and the... Yeah. Yes. and There's something about the... the, Who was it who was kind of like, had one of those like fake ostriches?
3: Oh, Bernie Clifton. Bernie
2: Clifton. (laughs) And it's a sex position being like, Bernie (laughs) Clifton and his ostrich. And I laughed about that for about five days straight. Well,
3: it it is brilliantly funny. I
2: I loved normal people. I loved it. But my real struggle is that, you know, the relationships are so bleak and abusive, but... How, that Connor's refusal to acknowledge her, I just can't... It just broke <sighs> me.
3: Oh, oh, I get that. I, yeah, I see, yeah, like that. how is he the hero of the piece when he was just so fundamentally mm. bad and wrong at the beginning... But now I actually oh. feel total sympathy. Well, not He wasn't know, bad he to says, her. Well, he was,
2: you know,
3: a 17, 18-year-old lad, and that's what...
2: That's what they do. Yeah. And
3: I, I think that I really loved Connor because I knew Connor. You know, it was like a boy I'd mm-hmm. known who was sweet and charming and...
2: I think that's it, sort of at the beginning I kind of got it and then it was just later on when he was a little bit inconsistent about things and I think some of it was about a lack of courage or a lack of confidence and it's about the way men are expected to be in the world and that's not fair but um, oh god and her brother, that's because I think it was so, I think she's a writer of a mission and i think that a lot of it is in what is left out I mean, and that's what she that does so but like chilling
3: and yeah just like it but as somebody who worked with abused women for so many years the way that she presented the central character was more realistic than when you can see yeah. and hear the action of what might be happening to that person to watch a person Disappear and change physically, and just their character change is the reality that I have seen over the years of working with women who are very badly put upon. So, I, I absolutely loved it. I absolutely—I was on the judging panel of the Bookseller uh, Awards, and oh, it won really? because I really fought for it. <laughs> I really fought <laughs> Ooh, for it because I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it.
2: And again, I think that's a story. Because I know it has been criticised for being slight, but I feel as well, though
3: short. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, slight in what regard?
2: Well, I, I think it's there is so much there, and her, you know, skill is that she says so much in so. Look, that's that's what you want. Is why you don't want, you know, to wade through extraneous like I'm the trees by this. Yeah. But um, I think this is a really. Great time now for those books for women to be treated with respect. I think that maybe even 10 years ago, normal people would have been a sort of maybe labelled as chicklet and dismissed yes. as such do you know there's a book that just got Anna Hope Expectation mm-hmm. and it's kind of, oh I think you'd love it. oh I think you'd really love it it's um, three women in their 30s it's sort of a and little I bit I'm reading that at the moment this is the <laughs> trouble that I
3: constantly read books that I don't know what the name is <laughs> and I don't know who's written it because I read it on a Kindle and it usually is at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> that I just go whatever Amazon has said I will like and I, so I'm reading a book about three women and one of them can't have a baby. And one of them really
2: wants to. And, and one, one is the one actress. Really, so yeah,
3: so yeah, yeah, I'm reading. I'm literally oh. reading that book at the moment. Yeah, don't spoil it.
2: <laughs> I won't <laughs> say anything.
3: I, I'm, I, I don't know how far through I am either. I, that's the trouble with reading a book on a Kindle is so I have no sense of how much more I've got to read. So do you but it's brilliant. To like, oh, I've, I've wanted more. <laughs> what I really, really like about them is that the, because it switches in time... Uh, between the past and the present or actually still the past but what is the present and the book is that the way that their relationship is changing where some of them are really really close at mm. some points and some of them have fallen out and that they're hot, they're they're they're, they're, they're like pissed off with each yeah. other is that is how my experience of female friendships that in a group you, you switch and change and allegiances change and everybody's slagging this person off for this for a bit and everybody's slagging that person off for that for a bit. So I, I absolutely love that book. It's not awful that I didn't know that that was the name of the book I was reading? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't have
2: to. I love it because it's so easy now. It's like, well, oh yes, of course, expectations. Right? And just to be like, well, you know, whatever this is, I just love it. It's great. Yeah, well, I, 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 often the way I read it
3: because I don't sleep very well. And I wake fretfully in the night because, you know, I have a difficult life. Uh, I don't have a difficult life. I have a troubling job. Um, And so I always read to put myself to sleep, which means now that I actually read books really slowly because as soon as I start reading a book, I start to fall asleep. Even if it's the middle of the day, it is literally like sort of Pavlov's dog. I will just fall asleep. And so often I just I will literally just go to whatever next is recommended. And I buy books completely without... Not even judging them by the cover, it is like I'll read the top three lines and if it doesn't sound like something that I'd be interested in, I'll discard it. It's a bit like Tinder. <laughs> you know, swipe to the left. Yeah, um, I think that
2: might be a multi-billion dollar business idea. Tinder yeah, for books. Yeah, Tinder for books, yeah. But you're so right, though, about the things that matter, even sort of between your 20s and 30s, and that it's going through these two periods that aren't that far apart, but actually saying that the priorities different. have changed yeah, and
3: they seem wildly different what i think is interesting about it is for uh, women in their 30s reading this book it i think it is there is a huge amount uh, of parallel with you know most women will be able to see themselves in one of the characters yeah. at one of the points of time not necessarily all the way through um but for for me what is interesting about reading it is is that their 30s are so markedly different from their 20s even though it's not that far apart because I had my children when I was 22 uh my first child so I had this sort of sense of arrested development or progressed development where uh, when I'm when I'm reading about them in their 20s I think god I just was wiping people's asses and cleaning nappies when I was in my 20s and how that has made my relationships in with women in the thir- my 30s when they're all having babies mm. different.
2: Have you read, do you know that Marion Key's book "Sushi for Beginners? Because yes. I love the friendship yeah, in that yeah, and yeah. Clodagh and um, and the thing that breaks my heart in that is her being sort of, Clodagh sort of having everything and yet being so empty and so unhappy and then being desperate to go out and have a world time with Ashley and she's like I've been Working fourteen hours straight. <laughs> yeah, I just don't
3: want to do it. But well, that, but that is the reality, isn't it, of uh, women's lives? And I think that, fun enough, reading the book that I'm currently reading. Whatever Expect- expectations. There you go. I was really pleased that it is completely different to Sally Rooney. It it is much more flowery in its language. Mm. It like leans into setting the scene all the time, and uh, it's not extraneous, but it's definitely there. And that it isn't like a sort of chicklet's just being rushed nowadays. It is that it, this sort of talking about women it, it is allowed to be yeah. brilliantly written and clever and, and sort
2: of treated as I'm doing air quotes here literary fiction rather. Yeah. And it's so and I think it's so weird the labels we give to books that are supposed to get them into people's hands but actually can put people off. And ha- and I understand as. I mean, I don't know how you feel as as an author. I mean, you must talk about your book before and your whether there's you know there are a conversation about kind of like where you sit in the bookshop and what and how you feel about that and how.
3: I mean, I don't, I, I don't. It's a whole world I don't understand, if I'm honest. Because whilst I, I am when you describe me as being an author, to me that just seems outrageous. The thought of being an author, even though I've now written two books, it, because I still just see myself as. A politician who happens to have written some books. Um, but when I go to the meetings with the publishers and all the different people you're sitting around the table, I sort of have given in to the idea that I just don't understand anything that any of them are talking about or that... And I always say in the acknowledgements, thanks to all these people because I didn't know what the hell was going on throughout <laughs> this. I will just write stuff and then I, I assume you know what you're up to because uh, I don't really understand this. But yeah, how, how it fits and where it fits. And it's if you write nonfiction as well, as I do, where it sits in the market, whether it's um, which age group it's meant to be mm. for. And it's when I'm writing, I do try and have a sense of who I'm writing it for. Uh, And so the first book I wrote, I definitely had, like, a a young... From teenage to upwards Mm. woman in my head, like... um, And I wanted it to be accessible to teenage girls as much as it is to a 30-something-year-old woman because there's big bits about motherhood and all that sort of thing, which, you know, as a teenager, you're probably like, oh, yeah, whatever, you're going to go and have babies. When I was a teenager, that's what teenagers did. (laughs) Um, But... um, and writing my second book, trying to think who I was talking to all the time, I think I wouldn't be able to write it if I didn't have a person. And so, this sort of very idea of an every person, like an ordinary person who just feels like they want to do something, and doesn't know what is the person I was talking to in my second book. Uh, you know, just ordinary people, the kind of people who watch this morning, I suppose, as well as people who are already slightly activated politically or. Uh, not just politically, but activated by a cause, but without thinking about who you're going to write it for. But then when it gets involved in marketing and that, it becomes a... You know, so I just did a thing for the Sunday Times. I don't know that I was talking to a Sunday Times audience when I wrote it, do you know what I mean? That it is weird the way that it will pan out, it depending on what you thought it was going to be and what they think is the best place to place you in the market. I and
2: mean, I guess there's lots of authors, you know, really, I mean doing lots of very, you know, busy full lives and they're all great. But um, I think I would guess that compared with most people who write books, you are talking to people sort of constantly and constantly really aware of who these people are that you're addressing the book to in an unignorable way whereas for lots of people it's there's a lot more kind of I think for guesswork. lots of
3: people it is uh, there's a much more insular process to writing a book and they are, they it is much more personal in lots of ways even though my first book was very personally about lots of things in my life mm. it it is much more personal and sort of yeah like blinkers on I'm gonna get my head down and write this I feel it needs saying or I think it's a great story whereas yeah for me it's it changes literally daily based on the conversations that I'm having with people in the country or people at work um because and I have this I wish I knew how to do this more in a more fancy way notes or saying something I I have a hilarious set of text messages that I've sent myself. And so obviously you get it twice because I've sent it and I've received it. (laughs) The only way I know how to keep it in a record where it will just be literally like, I'll suddenly be like, do this about abortion or something, because somebody has come in and just spoken to me about their experience. Um, And I I feel um, all this, last night I had to do, I had to get up in the middle of the night and write something down. Because I feel it's like constantly, like the day's experiences of dealing with people in, difficult circumstances, people struggling or people achieving, actually, mm. people succeeding, yeah. regardless of uh, circumstance. It's like every day you are constantly responding to that and putting it into what you write. I, I write best when I'm angry. It has to ah. be said. I have to be really quite cross. If I'm not cross, I don't really have anything to say. Uh, and somebody once gave me a piece of advice, is only write something if you've got something to say about it. Don't, like get a brief and just feel like you have to fill the page. And so I write much better when I'm really, really, really cross. So how
2: was the writing process? Were you sort of having to get really, really cross I every was, day? Yeah,
3: there's a lot of opportunities for crossness in my life. And sometimes when, I mean, the writing process is horrendous. I find it much easier the first time, although that may well just be like when you give birth, the first time you convince yourself when you're about to do it the second time that it wasn't that bad and that there's something in your brain that switches off because my husband said I was a massive pain in the ass the first time as well. Um, <laughs> there's I, a lot
2: to be said in life is there for not knowing what to expect and just yeah, thinking it's exa- going to be
3: dreadful. Exactly and so I found the first book just sort of fell out of me and the second book there were times when I was just like I trying to tell people how to speak up without both patronising them, teaching them sometimes to teach their granny to suck eggs because everybody is actually, you know, ploughing their own furrow in their own lives. And also without it constantly, my constant thought in my head was don't make it hyperbolic. Like don't, it has to constantly seem realistic to people to be able to do it. And even though the examples of the, the people who I interviewed in the book what they did was, uh, you know, they're taking on governments, taking on whole council areas and police forces, taking on, um, you know, huge, long-standing divisions in society. Um, But they were all very ordinary people Mm -hmm. and I had to try and constantly come back from the edge of of, of being too inspired by them because the whole point was you can do it (laughs) and constantly trying to look up and make sure you're speaking to the audience, not just having basically a love letter to this amazing activist that you love. Um, and that is hard.
2: I think it's such a weird time for that, isn't it? Because I feel like these two things are polarised. Well, either it's like, look at this amazing, but it's always like, you know, look at Oprah, look at Beyonce, yeah. this is what you should be achieving. And then the other side is, sorry, I'm a bit shit. And there's yeah. not really a way of marrying. And being a bit shit is supposed to be this sort of authentic thing that we're all... Like, I'm not apologising for apologising, but I am apologising. It's sort of insane, like, Hall of Mirrors, feminine inversion. I don't know, feminine, feminist inversion, rather, I don't know what is going on with that. But it it sounds like your book is the answer. Well, I'm I'm, going to sit here and say, yes, it is. I don't think that you
3: have to be perfect, and I don't think that you also... I don't think, you know... All people... I'm so deeply in love with people, all of them. I am fascinated by people. I think, uh, you know, just... Thomas Paine, I think, said, people are my religion. And that is how I feel. Um, Fleabag,
2: people are all we have. Yeah, yeah well,
3: I mean, and I, I just... you
2: Thomas Paine, i Fleabag. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, well, I'd rather be Fleabag. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm so fascinated by them. But I, I don't want people to think that things are unachievable for them. Because, yes, you're probably never going to end up being Oprah Winfrey. Uh, it's very uncommon that you get to be <laughs> Beyonce Knowles. Um <laughs> But also you shouldn't want to be, I suppose, is the point, is that, you know, be a legend in your own lunchtime. It, it, it is very, very difficult, though, that, that this either you you are a hero or you're in the bin. Mm. And nobody exists in that space, not even Beyoncé. I bet sometimes she proper belongs in the bin. I bet she's, like, has an off day and is, like, a, a nightmare to you everybody.
2: Say, she's definitely, definitely had KFC crumbs in her eyebrows, exactly. secretly, but I'm sure she has. Exactly. And...
3: Most people exist in the middle, yeah. good and bad, whether you agree with them or not. So I, I, I'm fascinated by people I, I even that I don't agree with, um, and vehemently don't agree with me. I'm still fascinated by what got them there and yeah. who they are and all of that stuff. So all
2: the tiny, tiny things informing their lives it, and yes, building the, up the, that
3: people's lives are amazing tapestry. And because in my job and the jobs that I've had before, you get an uh, immense privilege of getting to be trusted in people's lives to try and help them and you get you essentially a job for the nosy uh you you have privileged uh information on people's lives all the time and that is it builds a huge so you're sort of like death eating is how i sometimes describe it when you come across as many people as i do and uh, with with as many varied uh life experiences as i come across it's sort of like you're absorbing constantly uh, people's brilliance, even if they've come into moan about the bins. <laughs> <laughs> Which, believe you me, is more common than anything else.
2: This is a bit of a putting you on the spot question, that thinking of all the books you've read, if there was a character you could sort of persuade to go into politics, someone who'd sort of, you know, change the Labour Party and the country for the better and work with you, who would you like to recruit?
3: Um... Who would I like to get I mean I I mean I naturally would want to say uh Pauline Mole. I think she would have made an amazing oh, yeah. politician. She would have been she would I like to think she would have been a bit like me, she would have been like, No nonsense, like why are we still talking about this? Because that's what she's like with Adrian all the time. So yeah, maybe uh Pauline Mole um I, I'm actually matilda mm. matilda the world needs a matilda uh character and maybe yeah like um maybe the prime minister of new zealand uh maybe she's our matilda she seems to be matilda-esque um so yeah i would say i'd say those two that
2: really gives me hope that idea that makes me feel very optimistic the time hard oh, to be. would be an
3: amazing prime minister she would basically just roll her eyes and tut at people and just crack <laughs> on with just getting on with things. I think she would be brilliant. And also, all that scandal, she'd just be like, whatever, and just be smoking a fag around the back of uh, <laughs> 10 Downing Street. That would be amazing. Did you ever meet Sue Townsend? I didn't. Oh. I would absolutely have looked. So Jonathan Ashworth, the uh, MP for Le- one of the Leicesters, he said she lived down the street from him. Oh. And... Uh, I recently uh, was driving through Ashby de la Zouche and uh, I feel that it should have a... It should definitely have a statue of Adrian mole in Ashby de la Zouche, but it's got a Tory MP and so when I asked ah. him about it... Uh, andrew bridgen i said you should he was like you know it's bloody communist nonsense sort of thing. <laughs>
2: I was like, no
3: how could you have if adrian moll was from my constituency i would be make i would be pasting that everywhere i mean tolkien's from birmingham so he, like in parts of my constituency it's all like you know the hobbit land and everything <laughs> and people are really really proud of it but if adrian moll was from my constituency i just think Can't i'd you? be I, I would be so so proud The fact that he was from, they they were lived in, they started off living in Leicester and then they moved to Ashby de la Zouche. Uh, Even that is just because it's a funny name (laughs) and it sounds sort of like we've gone up in the world, we live in Ashby (laughs) de la Zouche. Even that is brilliant.
2: It just sounds a bit made up, doesn't it?
3: God, she's just so excellent. I read a thing as well that she said that just before, because she'd gone blind, hadn't she? And there's a character, Latterly, who goes blind in the books. And uh, I read a brilliant interview with her when she said, What was. Is the thing that always makes you happy. And, and she just said, uh, you know, finding a packet of fags where there is one left in it. And I remember just thinking, that always makes me happy. And, you know, like colouring pencils, like a box of fresh colouring pencils. I just thought, this woman, I just love everything about her. She is my absolute hero. I don't know that I'd be able to cope if I'd ever met her. I was just... I can think of nobody... I look up to more than Zoo and I love her.
2: It sounds like a sort of a carrying part of her soul. there's You know, there are so many parallels. And uh, just yeah. when you sort of, someone writes something and you're like, that, it's like it's me, but it's you. Yeah, exactly. Oh God, I just absolutely
3: love, and I wish that, you know, actually what I would wish, uh, I could have talked to her about the bits where Pandora goes on in the much later books where Pandora goes on to be a a new Labour MP and she's there in like furs and things uh, with her amazing hair. I just, yeah, I would like to have sat and talked to her about what she felt about those years Mm. of the Labour government. I just
2: absolutely love her. Huge thanks to Jess for being on the podcast and for giving me hope in trying times. Follow her on Twitter at Jess Phillips and do read Truth to Power. At a time when it sometimes feels impossible to do anything good, I genuinely believe that Jess's words will inspire us all to change the world for the better a little bit. I'm Daisy Buchanan, and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, Tome Raiders. You can find me on Twitter at notrollergirl and on Instagram at TheDaisyBee. Say hello, suggest some guests, and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by ACAST. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. For now, I leave you with this, attributed to Virginia Woolf. Secondhand books are wild books, homeless books. They have come together in vast flocks of variegated feather. And have a charm which the domesticated volumes of the library lack. Also, secondhand books are books you can justify buying 10 at a time. See you soon!
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars